Welcome to Leadership Conversations, a podcast by the Sustainability Board Report. Join us as we engage in conversations with business and civil society leaders, educators and advisors discussing the role of sustainable leadership in today's world. The Sustainability Board Report is an independent, not-for-profit project. We aim to showcase different dimensions of sustainable business leadership and corporate governance. We publish reports to help individual leaders, organizations and investors to understand the changing landscape of environmental, social and governance factors. Welcome to Leadership Conversations. I am Helena Guyansdottir and I am a project manager at the Sustainability Board Report and I am joined with Frederick Otto, the founder of TSBR. It is great to be releasing our second episode. We had another fantastic guest on. Andrew Winston co-authored recently a book with Paul Polman called Net Positive, which we discussed today. I was really excited speaking to Andrew. Of course, there are a lot of books on sustainable businesses out there at the moment, but I read this book and liked it a lot that I thought it would be great to speak to Andrew about it. And it turns out that he is actually doing a podcast a day at the moment. He is in the midst of his publishing roadshow, if you will. Him and Paul Polman, who is the former CEO of Unilever, have a very busy schedule of talking about the book. It has been very well received in the sustainability and the business community. And it was great that he freed up some time. So really enjoyed the conversation. It it was a very, you know, off script, fluid interview. He adds a lot more to the questions that I was asking him. And he really um, gives a lot of insights. So I really enjoyed that. How about yourself? What were your favorite takeaways from this episode? I mean, overall, it was very fascinating to hear of his journey, but I enjoyed thoroughly hearing about his mission that he's on to sort of inspire companies to build a thriving world that we can all coexist in. But additionally, I think the topic of humility came up again, similar to our first episode. And, you know, leaders should really walk the talk and be someone that they themselves would like to follow. And that's definitely something that I would take away from today's episode. I agree with you. And uh, of course, we didn't only speak about the book, but he also talks about his background and, and how he got into sustainability and that business leadership part of it, really. Well, I'd say without further ado, then let's go to the episode. Andrew Winston. Our guest today on Leadership Conversations is one of the world's leading thinkers on sustainable business. Andrew Winston is co-author of Green to Gold and author of The Big Pivot. He has written hundreds of articles for Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, and other top publications. Recently, Andrew has published the book Net Positive that he co-authored with Paul Polman, the former CEO of Unilever. Andrew, it's a great pleasure having you today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm very keen to talk about your new book, but before that, could you share a little about your journey in sustainable business to date and what you currently focus on? Sure. So um, I've been in this 20 years, which is shocking to me on many levels. When I got into it, I was kind of one of the young guys. I had a career first in kind of regular business as a consultant at Boston Consulting Group and then doing marketing and strategy jobs, mostly in the media business. And I wasn't doing sustainability. I didn't really know anything about it. And I had kind of a values check during the dot-com crash in 2000 and, you know, kind of made this right turn into trying to figure out how I could marry just a belief in, in kind of doing well by the planet and just actually a very practical sense that the 
I had a, I had this kind of deep sense that the way we were doing things wasn't sustainable like in the literal sense of the word, like we probably couldn't keep going at this pace. And it really didn't take much research to figure out that that was true, that we're, you know, overusing the planet and, and that capitalism as we do it has some serious issues. And so I went back to school and started writing and, you know, I've written four books now. And really, it's all been focused for this whole part of my career on how business can help serve the world, how business can solve environmental and social problems and profit and be successful by doing it. I, I really, you know, have to say regularly, I'm not talking about philanthropy or really corporate social responsibility. Those are important things, but I'm talking really just about strategy, corporate strategy and execution and doing it in service of the kinds of problems we need to solve. And so my work, you know, now I kind of, you know, my mission is to inspire companies to, to build a thriving world. And I do that through writing the books and articles through speaking globally, mostly virtually globally now, and consulting directly with companies and sitting on, you know, sustainability advisory boards and some actual boards and just trying to influence the direction of business in general. And so the new book that we'll talk about is, you know, out with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever. And we're trying to put a flag out there about what we think business needs to be doing now. You just said you've, you've been so long in this business, two decades. How, how do you think the narrative has changed? And you also just said you talk a lot about corporate strategy. Was that always the case or is that a recent development? No, I always have. And it's funny because I'm giving a, a little kind of educational session tomorrow for some, some educators, basically, and kind of just giving them the basic perspective on this history. And I went and found, I, I did a chart in grad school like 18 years ago. And it's a chart that everybody in sustainability strategy has done some version of, which is the march of corporate focus from compliance. Like some version of the law tells me I have to do something, which is kind of the 70s, you know, with the launch of the really big, the first really big national environmental laws in the U.S., which a lot of people wouldn't believe now, given the, the tension in the U.S. on passing environmental laws, um, up through, you know, in the 80s, you know, starting to see, oh, it can, it can save some money. There's cost cutting, you know, kind of starting to see some benefits, some, you know, movement from compliance to there's some benefit here to, oh, I can innovate to this ideal that, you know, whatever we're writing about now is kind of where we should be, which is, you know, uh, thinking of, of sustainability in this very proactive, strategic way and, and where we are now at net positive. And I think there is that path of, you know, four or five kind of different stages that companies go through. And the very, the, the very front runners, you know, the leaders have made it to seeing sustainability really as a core part of their business like Unilever. There's still plenty that are caught back in the, well, we do this because NGOs ask or there's compliance. And that varies a lot you know, around the world. But, but what I'd say is what's really changed from dramatically in the last you know, couple of years. I mean, I, I've been saying this a lot, but the last two years, I think there's been more change in what it means to be a business or the expectations of business than in the 20 that I've been in this. And, and a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the, the pandemic you know, concentrated things, the The killing of George Floyd in the U.S. created this racial discussion globally, which was shocking. The, the insurrections and decline of democracy around the world has created pressure on business to step in. So there's just this expansion of what's expected of business. And I'd say just getting on the agenda for the board and CEO, the idea of sustainability, your environmental and social footprint in the world, that battle's over, right? I think what's happened in the last couple of years was we really kind of closed the loop And pretty much every large company in the world is now at the table talking about it to some extent. So we won. Like it took 20 years, you know, that I've been in it and 30, 40 that some of my mentors have been in it. And we're there, right? We're there. But now it's about 
how fast, how deep do they really take it into the business? Do they really challenge the kind of neoliberal, you know, shareholder first mentality that's, that's been so dominant. And, and I think that's the next, the next wave. And what has moved you now to write this book together with Paul? And I suppose who are the people you want this book to read? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's easy when you write a business book to say everybody should read it. And there's some truth to that. I mean, obviously I think any business book is, is written, you know, in theory for C-suite executives, but really anybody who aspires to be, which is a lot of people, right? I mean, a, a lot of people in business, people in business school, certainly. My books have been read in classes for a number of years, and I think this one is already being adopted in a bunch of classes. So you want to capture people coming into business. But we also hope that you're reaching with this NGOs and their leaders who are far more business savvy, you know, in, in, in the last decade than they used to be, to government leaders, because the book really builds um, to this idea of deep partnerships, of the kind of collaborations we need to solve big problems. So it is a more of a how-to for how do you build a company that thinks in a net positive way that wants to serve the world and improve the well-being of everyone they touch. But we believe that you know, NGOs and government um, governments will also get some benefit of really understanding what a business that it looks like that is, right? And how to think about how to work with a business like that. So we think it, it should appeal to a lot of different groups. But, you know, obviously the core is companies and and all the people that, you know, are are creating those companies and building the culture and making them what they are. And the, you know, the drive to write this was on some level just frankly, you know, kind of terror at what's happening in the world and the need to move much faster. I mean, if you follow climate, you know, like those of us in this field, it's really bad, right? I mean, and, and it's hard to even know how to talk about it with family and friends who don't watch it so closely because it's bad. And we need to move much quicker. The Glasgow conference, the, the climate conferences are progressing, but nowhere near fast enough. And that leaves it a huge gap. And we think business is going to have to not lead, but, but be a serious part of the, of the partnership, you know, and, and really step up to fill those gaps along with, you know, kind of regional, state, city actors. You know, the national level commitments are not enough um, and we have to go faster. And then on inequality, I think companies have just a huge role to play through their wages, through their diversity and inclusion efforts, through how they enable equality. So, I, you know, companies have so much power and we just have so much, I think, optimism about what they're capable of that, you know, this book is about going much, much faster and we think it's better for business. Yeah, on fast. We talked a little bit before this recording and you asked me how I like the book and, and I really, really like it because it is very fast paced. It is full of case studies and, and, and it's a great read and it is something um, for everybody. And like, like you said, it focuses on the how to. Let me ask you this. I have a lot of conversations with leaders in the services industry, whether that's professional services, financial services, or even technology. And they often say, look, we understand, you know, the, the impact that food companies like Unilever, for example, has or the oil and gas companies and that they have to do something about climate uh, and other issues. But us, not so much. I know you talk um, in the book a lot about those companies as well. Could you share a couple of your favorite case studies or your favorite stories of um, companies where their environmental footprint might not be so obvious and what they've done about it? Yeah, I mean, the, the less obvious ones. It's kind of funny when you look at rankings, um, and there's been rankings for years, but things like Newsweek magazine does a green ranking with working with a consulting firm, um, and and or corporate nights in Canada, like kind of uh, you know the the best citizen companies. Really often in those rankings, the tech companies rise to the top, 
And it's kind of like, because there's something built into how they rank them, that that somehow assesses tech companies as not having a big footprint because they they have contract manufacturing, they're really digital. But it seems so odd to me because the cloud that we all love is not light. I've written about this for years. I mean, the cloud, you know, Google's the biggest energy user in the in the state of California, you know, so the the tech companies are always put at the top. And, and I think they've started to live up to that because they've become the leaders in renewable energy. But most people kind of already think that somehow they're more sustainable. But in reality, they have a huge footprint, an enormous footprint. And so there's the physical footprint of their data centers and everything. And they're moving the agenda pretty fast there, Microsoft and Google in particular, really pushing the boundary, setting the most aggressive carbon goals in the world these retroactive goals where, the, where they want to take more carbon out of the air than they emitted since they were founded. But then there's the kind of less obvious perspective or increasingly obvious perspective, but wasn't thought about for a while, of tech companies and their larger impact in society. There was you know, years and years of just assuming basically you know, the Silicon Valley attitude is very obviously tech optimistic. And if we bring everybody information, the world would just be better. And I actually think most of the world has been shocked to find out what's happened instead over the last decade is that we've gone into these bubbles of misinformation. And so we talk in the book, you know, about Facebook, for example, and their extended responsibility, you know, the core of net positive, the core principle is taking ownership and responsibility of how you impact the world. You know, Facebook has a footprint through data centers, so they should buy renewables. Great. But their real impact is through misinformation and the undermining of democracy, which is Sounds ridiculous to say that a company could have that kind of power, but they really do and are arguably the most powerful company in the world right now in a detrimental way. So taking a bigger view of your responsibility can get you into some areas that maybe you didn't think of as, quote, ESG, right, but are the real impacts of your business. We also talk in in the book about kind of service businesses that also kind of get a quick pass, often have for many years, and that's, that's been changing dramatically like banks also don't have a big physical footprint. They have offices and they travel, but their footprint is really what they finance, right? And so there's finally in the last few years, this really big movement to change their financing plans and the, you know, they're making commitments on zeroing out the carbon of their, of their investment portfolios. I think it's really way too slow at this point, but at least they're kind of at the table putting that out there. And, and finally, service businesses like consultants, we slam a little bit and I'm a consultant. I've, I've been in it. Because again, PR firms, strategy consultants often get a pass on who they work for. And why is that, right? Their footprint is, do they help companies that are not improving the world, that are actually you know, hurting the world? And they do all the time. They take whatever client will pay them for the most part. And I think, again, that's being questioned more and more, mostly, I think, by their own employees. And that's one of the biggest changes I think we've, we've seen is employees speaking up, especially young millennials, Gen Z, the new ones, just fearless, right? To, about going to CEOs and saying, I don't agree with what we're doing and making their opinions known. And that scares companies, right? The talent shortage is very real right now. So I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We've just recently done a report on who are the leaders of a business ecosystem apart from you know CEOs and boards and one were ESG intrapreneurs or activist employees who are really you know pushing and, and basically taking the baton and wanting to lead in this in this conversation, right? On the on the impact piece, what I found fascinating in the book as well, how you talk about how the impact of a company evolves. And I think it all starts with 
blowing up boundaries that that Mm -hmm. stuck with me. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of evolution of impact that a company could have and, you know, what you sort of have to get started with? Yeah. So I've been, a lot of my work directly with companies for years has been on goal setting. I have a free public database that I often forget to mention, which is called pivotgoals.com, which was based on my last book, The Big Pivot. And the top 200, 250 companies, the largest in the world, we track and capture their goals. You know, not up to the minute. If someone puts out a goal, it might be months till it gets in the database. We don't, you know, have a huge staff, but it's a really good database of about 4,000 goals to kind of see what companies have committed to. And you can kind of look over time at how much that has changed. And they've added in, you know, far more social goals in recent years, far more quantitative goals. But we, so we talk about goals in this, in this chapter about blowing up boundaries. And what we mean is that to think, you know, big enough about your role in the world, you do have to have an outside in perspective. Like really the the crux of all of this for business and for society is that we have thresholds, right? There's a physical threshold of the the planet's resources. Paul, my co-author likes to talk about world overshoot day, which this year was July 29th, which is a rough calculation that we've used as much as the planet can produce. That's more the interest of the planet's capital by July 29th. And after that, we're drawing down capital. And we're basically stealing from future generations. So there's that understanding of thresholds of the amount of stuff, of the you know, stable climate, clean air and water, and then kind of minimum standards of sufficiency for people like dignity and, and people having enough to eat and water. And that middle ground is what, you know, as Kate Raworth calls donut economics, you know, that kind of space, that safe operating space for humanity. So we start in that chapter by talking about even if you're setting goals just for your, you know, proverbial four walls of your business, they need to reflect these thresholds. So you're taking an outside in. So having like a zero waste goal, right, or zero carbon goal. The reason you have that goal is is not just it's kind of good for the business, but really it's because of those thresholds, right? You go zero waste because there's just pressure on resources. You go zero carbon because you know we got to get there scientifically. Otherwise. People would just, you know, fundamentally go as things get cheap enough, right? They'd add renewables as they get cheaper, which is now, but it wouldn't necessarily have this framing. And so we say you got to blow up the boundaries of thinking about your business in just these four walls and say, even as we set our own goals, they're reflecting the outside. And that sets you up to then start to think, okay, how do we not just do zero waste from our factory, but across the value chain for this, you know, set of materials that we use, you know, how do we work with partners, with our suppliers, with customers, with governments, and build the recycling infrastructure that we need, that, that you start to set larger goals for the system. I think system-wide goals are, are newer, but are coming, right? Where, where companies say, it's not just what we can do, but it's what we can do together. And staying on that personal capacity or the leaders who, who get this conversation going, I hear the adjective courageous more and more, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you're mentioning it in the book as well. And I think that really uh, sums it up very nicely. But apart from being courageous, what are the traits that leaders need to have and what is the approach that they have to take personally to act on you know, what, what we need to achieve? Well, courage is in the subtitle, you know, how courageous companies thrive by you know, giving more than they take, right? That's the, that's the subtitle. And courage is huge because it is, it, it takes courage to push back on the short-term pressures that we all just have assumed as the way business should operate, the short-term quarterly shareholder pressure and to push back on that. But I think to really build a net positive company, it's fundamentally more human and humane. And I've had 
people who have read it who are not sustainability folks, you know, because the book's been out about six weeks. So we're now starting to have people finish it, right? It takes a few, people get a book, it takes a few weeks, they start reading it. So really hitting the point now where people have read it. And I've heard from a number of people, wow, it just has so much humanity in it. Like we use the word love at some point about, you know, in business, and you just don't see that often in, in business. So I think it has to start with a humanity with someone having um, empathy, you know, and compassion and, and humility that goes with that. We're not going to solve really big problems without humility. And you think about it, it's really the most kind of courageous and confident people who can be humble, who can say, I don't know how to do this. Because that's how else you improve or learn something if you don't say, I don't know how. But it's culturally really difficult, I think, for CEOs or for C-suite people, for anyone. So there's that kind of humility and, and, and humanity, but there's just also a sense of duty and purpose, a sense of serving. There's being an inspiration, kind of walking the talk and, and being follow worthy as a leader, like being someone you want to follow. And then we always throw in into kind of these principles in the book, the idea of being um, open to and embracing partnership, because it's so core that you kind of need that trait to be comfortable partnering with people you don't necessarily work with normally or are different, you know, just have a different perspective like NGOs and governments and being um, respectful, you know, humble again, but being respectful of the different perspectives that are in the room and that there's not just, you know, often there's a sense in business, oh, NGOs don't understand business and NGOs come in and say, oh, business just doesn't care about the world. And and those are all really very, you know, oversimplified, right? And, and naive. And it's coming in with this openness to partnership that I think makes a huge difference. That building coalition is so important. I, I remember someone telling me beginning of the year, you, you really need to build coalition to scale up, right? Yeah. I want to close with uh, two questions that we're asking every guest, and this one is my favorite. What okay. is your favorite story of a particular leader organization that had a huge positive impact on yourself or society? And, and I'm sure you have a million of examples. Does one stand out that you like to share? Well, I mean, look, I, it sounds self-serving or something, but you know, Paul has been an inspiration, and that's why it was exciting to work with him. I think he's been recognized. I mean, Unilever has been ranked in, in the GlobeScan survey kind of the global survey of sustainability people, like who, you know, just asking them, who do you think is a company doing the most? Unilever's been the number one in that ranking for 11 years. So, you know, obviously I've respected Unilever and Paul for years, but going back further, and I, I talk about this briefly in the preface that I got into this field when I had that kind of gut check um, and asked around to some friends and said, you know, how do I marry environment and business? And I was kind of first told about this word sustainability and, and a guy named Ray Anderson who was the founder and, and ran Interface Flooring out of Georgia in, in the U.S. And he had been running it for years. You know, I think he was probably in his late 50s, 60s when he had this kind of epiphany. And he talks about this spear in the chest in his book, Mid-Course Correction. That was the first book I read in the field. And he talks about reading Paul Hawkins' Ecology of Commerce. And so I just followed the path and read the same things. And it really, it was over a few weeks, you know, 20 years ago. and and I read these books and thought, oh, okay, this is exactly what my what I've been feeling. There's a problem. He just had this awakening of, oh, wow, like I run a company that makes carpet, so it's petrochemical-based fibers, and we're just taking from the world. And he just set out, and he was really the first of company of any scale. They're like a billion, you know, not, not Unilever, but not small, to say, we have to try to set this goal, this mountain or Mount Impossible, I think he called it, um, of being, I mean, they were the, really the first to say, we got to be zero carbon. They, they were the first to start talking effectively net positive. I mean, they've been way ahead as a, you know, midsize 
public, but kind of you know majority controlled by by Ray and and allies. So like there was a little more of the private enterprise element to it, and he could do this. And it's take look, they're twenty years, they're twenty five years into this, and they're still working on it, right? And they're one of the best. They also on the GlobeScan survey, they're also always in the top you know five. And so that he was an inspiration, right? He just because I think there's something about people having this awakening within their own career within and, and and having that change it's it's easy to see companies change because younger people come in they're just they have a different perspective they're more open to this but when someone changes midstream we got to capture that somehow like well, why does that work because that's what has to happen right we can't wait till every company's run by gen z you know like we don't have the time for that so i just found, always found him inspirational and and just he was open to change his you know i guess his heart was open to hearing something different and hearing okay I'm actually helping destroy the world. And I think I can change that. I mean, that's always been inspirational. Fantastic. And then lastly, and I suppose you've um, answered the question already, but what, what is a piece of advice or uh, apart from the resources that you've just mentioned, do you have any other sort of piece of, of advice for leaders who want to really start set themselves up for more positive impact, any other resources or project they should follow and, and, and what is the easiest way of getting started now? Yeah, well, look, it's easy to say, well, just, you know, read my books, but, you know, buy the books and articles, but But read the um, book, (laughs) but read the book. I I, look, it helps. I think if you need to go back and get a little more grounding in it, you know, my first book, Green to Gold, as a lot of people have read, it's more the, hey, green saves money, it can create value. It's a little more fundamental. And even things like Ray's book, just kind of getting a sense of how people have gone on this journey. But we have um, on the website for the book, which is netpositive.world. We have what we call a readiness assessment. It's 25 questions that get you to start thinking about, do we have what we need to really get started to go down this path? You know, it's not really assessing how net positive are you. It's just saying, how ready are you for kind of a bigger journey? And starts with some things like, do you know the world's thresholds, like climate and inequality and how they affect your business and how you affect them? Do you know your footprint and your suppliers and your customers? I mean, do you have these kind of these pieces of information? Do you know your stakeholders and what they expect of you? And, and in particular, I'd say, start with employees. Like, do you know what they expect of you? Are you listening to younger employees? That's, that's to me, kind of the first thing. If you want a broader perspective, like, you know, find those new Gen Zs in the, in the company, some young millennials and ask them, you know, I think, listen to them. And so I think if starting with the questions that we have, I've heard a few people have told me that they've found the questions a little anxiety producing because they're like, oh, there's all these things I should be working on. But, you know, to me, it's like going to get a checkup. You know, there's some things you hear that aren't great, but you go, okay, these are the things I need to work on. It, you know, it shouldn't produce anxiety, but some understanding of what's, what's missing. So I'd, I'd, like I said, listen to, the, listen to younger people. I think be open to kind of, you know, as always reading things from different sources. And there's lots of great newsletters on climate and sustainability and, and groups that kind of come together in kind of a safe space for business, like Green Biz, Sustainable Brands, Corporate Eco Forum. There's these groups that really assemble great conferences, great you know, sessions and corporate membership groups where you can have fairly safe conversations about it and get exposed to kind of the, the way of thinking that the leaders are, are taking. Those are all possible paths, but, you know, start with the book. Excellent. Andrew, I really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Conversations. To follow our work and learn more about our reports, please check out our website, boardreport.org, and sign up to our newsletter. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, 
Details can be found in the podcast description.